Well, it's glad to be I'm glad to be back with you, and um, really appreciate your pastor Matt and his commitment to the gospel. Uh, a lot of churches don't emphasize the gospel like you do, not just in the preaching, but in the worship every single week, and that's a huge gift that you've been given. Although I'm not sure I appreciate uh, Matt's judgment being gone from Traverse City in August. <laughs> it makes me wonder about him, but I'm glad to be here in his stead. Um, also prospectus class, I participated in that in Grand Rapids and it's a really great class. So if you have any thoughts about it, the material's wonderful, it's challenging, it's stretching, and also the chance to be with other believers is really good as well. Well, um, we're here in May, the beginning of summer, so thank you. We get to start and end our summer with you, although it's not the end of summer yet, right? Next week is the end of summer party. But I was thinking what to preach this time, and I thought, well, the I have a good sermon on the prodigal son, but that's Matt's favorite text. So I'm sure you've heard the prodigal son a lot as well you should. So I thought, well, what's a safe text that Matt probably hasn't touched on lately? <laughs> and I went with Genesis 38. And you may have noticed some of the um, words didn't line up because I edited Genesis 38. So kids, there are parts of the Bible that we don't want you to read just yet. But Genesis, if you have your Bible, look at Genesis chapter 38 for this text. And why I'm doing this, actually, our church is going through Genesis, and we're right in the middle of the end of Genesis, which is the Joseph-Judah story. It's one of the best stories in all of literature and in the Bible. And of course, most of us are familiar with Joseph. He was sold into slavery. Uh, he became head of Potiphar's house, and then Potiphar's wife turned on him and slandered him, and he was thrown into prison. Then he becomes Pharaoh's number one man, and he, he's put there to rescue his family from famine. But Joseph's story is not just about Joseph. It's also about Judah, and Judah's rise to become the number one tribe of Israel. In fact, Judah's, Joseph's rise is intertwined with Judah's rise. So Joseph, if you... I'm, I'm learning so much as I'm going through this series that I hadn't seen before. And I'm not saying this is gospel truth because it's, I'm trying to interpret the story. But if you think about it, Joseph had severe trauma in his life. Imagine if you are betrayed by the ten closest people to you. The people that know you the best. They don't just betray you, they, they plot to kill you. In fact, they throw you into a cistern, to a deep pit with just a hole at the top, and you hear them talking about how they're going to kill you. Imagine the trauma that Joseph is going through. There's a reason why I think when he becomes Potiphar's number one man, running Potiphar's house, he never reaches out to his family back home. He never even checks on his dad. When he becomes Pharaoh's number one guy for nine years, he never reaches out. Is my dad alive? Is my dad okay? I think Joseph, so much trauma, I think he closed the book on his family. He, his firstborn son, he names Manasseh. And Manasseh means forget. In fact, in chapter 41 of Genesis, verse 51, he says, I named you forget. So I forget all my trouble. Also forget all my father's household. He wanted to turn the page. He thought he had turned the page. In fact, when the brothers show up and surprise him, I think there's a reason, a deep reason, why Joseph keeps giving them back their silver. Remember what he was sold for to the Midianite traders? 20 pieces of silver? Silver is what economists call fungible, right? If someone gives you money, you can use that money for all sorts of purposes. 
So that if someone has a, a big debt of, say, $20, and you give them $20, they can pay off that debt, or they can do something else with that money. So Joseph says, I was sold for silver. If my brothers give back the silver, that's tainted. That's, that's blood silver. I want nothing to do with that. And so he's not just being nice. I think he, he gives it back. In fact, I, I think he's really torn about this. But in the end of chapter 44, it's Judah who finally gives this impassioned speech when um, Joseph says, we're done here. And Judah says, can I talk to you just alone? And in this, it's the longest speech in all of Genesis. And 14 times Judah mentions, my father. You, we can't do this to my father. And Joseph realizes this is Judah. Judah knows that his father doesn't love him much at all. He loved Joseph. And yet he's willing to sacrifice and become my slave forever for his father. And Joseph broke. I said, everyone out of the room. And then he revealed himself to his brothers. So I think Judah is responsible for Joseph's final blow. But this morning in this really, um, so I encourage you to read the whole story. There's so much there that's gripping. And read it as if Joseph is a real human being, a guy, because he is. Someone who's experienced deep trauma from those who know him best and has to learn how to forgive and be reconciled with his brothers. But today we're, we're going to look at Judah's, well, where Judah begins. So if you think about Jacob's big family, right? He's got 12 sons. Who's going to lead this most important family in the history of the world? Well, Jacob wants Joseph. That's why he gives him the coat. Joseph, you get to be in charge. Even though you're only 17, you haven't earned this. And then Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt. Well, who's left? Number one would be Reuben. But Reuben disqualified himself when he slept with Rachel's made Bilhah, we think as a way of elevating uh, Reuben's mother, Leah. But Jacob heard about it and said, that's it, you're done. Sons two and three, Simeon and Levi, they wiped out all the men in Shechem after they violated their daughter, Dinah. And then that leaves Judah, son number four. And his start is not promising. In chapter 37 of Genesis, when Joseph is in a cistern, and they're planning to just let him starve. Judah, this is the first time we hear from Judah. Chapter 37, verse 26. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him at, at all. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. What do you think about? That's the first time we hear from Judah. What do you think about that? Let's not kill our brother. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Well, it's good, right? Because we're not going to kill him. But it's also like, it's a pretty low bar because it's the brothers we're talking about. But you're going to sell him to the Ishmaelites? I think the key is when he said, what will we gain? That's what's driving him. If we just kill him, if we let him die in the cistern, we get nothing out of it. But what if they had? What if another caravan had come and offered 40 shekels, double the price they're going to get from the Ishmaelites, and they would take Joseph to the mines or off to war where he would surely die? What would Judah say then? If his bottom line is, what will we gain? If that's what's driving him, well, that's not really promising, right? In fact, he did sell Joseph to Egypt, and they didn't know what would happen. There's a big difference if you become a slave in the mines or if you, in the quarries, or if you become a slave in the war, you're, you're surely going to die. Or even a slave in the fields really hard. But 
They didn't know that Joseph would become a household slave, which was, which was much, much better off. So Judah professed a soft spot for his own flesh and blood. We can't sell Joseph. He's family. But I, sorry, we can't kill Joseph. We'll just sell him because he's family. But I ask you, would you trust your son with this man? Would you? Would you trust your son with this man? It's really important for the sermon. I need to hear you. <laughs> Would you trust your son with this man? Good call. <laughs> so in chapter 37, he puts himself over family, right? We're just going to sell him, not kill him. But in, in our chapter 38, he's not only thinking about himself. We read chapter 38 begins, at that time. So this chapter covers roughly the 22 years that Joseph is in Egypt after he'd been sold into slavery. Here's what's going on with Judah. At that time, Judah left his brothers, his own flesh and blood. Now he had good reasons to walk away, right? His father favored Joseph, gave him the coat. Joseph, you're in charge. His brothers nearly killed Joseph. His dad's now a basket case when he finds out that something's happened to Joseph. He's in constant mourning. And think about this. His brothers kept this explosive secret from Jacob. It never leaked, right? They had sold him into slavery, and they knew what had really happened. Jacob thinks he's dead, and they never let this secret even they try to like fake comfort him. They never tell Jacob or, or the wives. No one spilled the secret. And so Judah may have just said, I'm tired of this drama. Waves his hand in his disgust. I'm out of here. I deserve better. I want more. And the text says he went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. He went down geographically, because they're in Hebron, which is on the central mountain ridge, and Adullam's in the valley, three miles southwest of Bethlehem. But he also went down spiritually. The Hebrew says, he pitched a tent up to an Adullamite named Hira. Have you, does that echo anything else in Genesis, pitching a tent? Who pitched a tent near some, somewhere? Lot. Lot pitched his tent near Sodom. And I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, where Paul says, bad company corrupts good character. He's quoting a Greek poet named Menander, but he says it's true. In his context in 1 Corinthians, if you hang around people who deny the bodily resurrection of Christ, don't be surprised if you deny God's power and the physicality, the, the total cosmic redemption that Christ offers. Don't be surprised if you hang around people who deny the goodness of the physical world and deny God's power that you'll start saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If you want to know who you will be tomorrow, ask yourself, who are, who are my friends today? Yes. Now, we want to be friends with lost people, right? Um, as we share with perspectives, we want to have many friends who need Jesus. So, of, of course, Jesus had many friends who needed him, and that's true. But think about who, who do you see as your peers? Your friends who are your peers in every way, the, the people that you seek out, the people that you are very comfortable, that you can just be yourself, let your hair down when you're around them. Those people are shaping you. That's why it's really important who you marry, right? 
Whoever you marry, that person is what you are going to become. We even say that married couples, uh, Julie and I celebrated our anniversary yesterday, half my life, half our lives now, we've been married. And the best half of our lives we've been married. And I had a pretty good first half, but my second half is, I'll hope I get more, uh, second half means I'm dying tomorrow. So um, <laughs> this half, though, has been better than the first half. Hopefully it's not the second half. But when people get married, right, they start even to look like each other. I think that's because all old people look alike. <laughs> but we do, there is something to that, right? Who your friends are, who you marry, that will shape you. So Judah marries a Canaanite in verse 2. A Canaanite, a daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. And this way he's following his uncle Esau and directly opposing his grandparents, Isaac and Rebekah, who had great grief when Esau married Canaanites. And he's going against his great-grandpa Abraham, who at great cost sent a servant up to Haran, to Uncle Laban's house, to find a, a daughter, a, a wife for Isaac. So Judah is doing exactly what his grandparents and great-grandparents fought hard not to do, marry a Canaanite. And he starts a family. He has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And in verse 6, we read that Judah got a wife for Ur. This was the it couple of Adullam, Ur and Her. <laughs> and well, in Hebrew, it's Tamar, but that seems pretentious because we don't say, we say Joseph, not Yosef, and we say Judah, not Yehuda. So I'll call her Tamar because that's how we typically call it in, in English, Tamar. So if you, if you know Hebrew, just know, yeah, I know it's Tamar, but we're going to say Tamar. So Ur and Her. Imagine calling the house, asking for Tamar. May I speak to her? And they hand the phone to Ur. I'm sorry. I want to speak to her. Not Ur. Ur, sure. No, her. Who's on first? <laughs> Judah left his family, the people of God, because he did not appreciate what he had. He was walking away from God's blessing. God had promised to bless Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Judah's walking away from all of that. And he's getting enmeshed with these Canaanites trying to start a new life in a wicked world. And it doesn't go well. In verse 7, Ur erred. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. How bad is Ur? In Hebrew, Ur is evil spelled backwards. When God looks at Ur, he sees a mirror to evil. Evil's getting reflected back in his sight. And here's the crazy part. Judah named him that. What kind of dad names his son evil spelled backwards? Would you name your son Redrum? That's murder, in case you're thinking. Onan, after God killed Ur, Onan steps up. Onan's wicked too. Now, Onan spelled backwards is Nano. Remember Mork and Mindy? Yeah. So Nano means nothing. Actually, in Hebrew, it means small, which actually can help us here because Nano, which means small, this is why he didn't want to have a son for his brother Ur because with Ur out of the picture... All of Judah's property gets divided in two, and Onan gets half, and Shelah gets half. But if he gives a son to Ur, he's the firstborn son, he gets a double portion, which means he gets half, and then Shelah and Onan have to split the other half. So Onan's thinking, I either get half, or if I do my duty, I get a fourth. 
no thanks, I want to keep half. And so God kills him too. Judah is in denial. He's got two wicked sons, so wicked that God kills them. How bad do you have to be that God sees you and just smites you dead? But Judah, he, he blames Tamar. Look at verse 11 of chapter 38. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought Shelah may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. We'll find that in a minute here that Judah was lying to Tamar. He had no plans to let her have Shelah because then he might lose a third son. So in Judah's mind, this is not my fault. It's not my wicked son's fault. Whose fault is it? It must be Tamar's fault, the one person who did nothing wrong. She must pay. So I ask you, would you trust your son with this man? No. no. Tamar doesn't trust him either. And so she invents this daring plan. She wants justice. She wants what Judah owes because of his promise. And she wants what Judah promised because of what he owed. She wants a husband and she wants a family. Well, Judah's wife dies and he's lonely. So we read in verse 12, after his wife died, when Judah recovered from her grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hira the Adulamite went with him. When Tamar was told, well, I'll stop right there. These are two guys on a road trip. <laughs> One is pagan, one is acting like it. He's lonely. Sheep shearing time, there's, it's festive. There's lots of wine that's flowing. Would you trust your man with this son? Would you trust your man with this son? No. Verse 13. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Tinma to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. The word Enayim there, the place where she's sitting, in Hebrew it means opening of the eyes. Don't you love the irony? She covers her face at a place that means the opening of the eyes. This irony should be expected because Judah has left the family of God. He's left the people of God and he's floundering. He can't see what's going on. He thinks he's in control. He thinks he's initiating. He thinks this is all his idea. He's the aggressor. But he's being played. He's being scammed. Tamar is targeting him. He's the mark, and he has no idea. Something similar is going on today, right? Our culture is telling us and our children, you do you. You've got this. You're amazing. Follow your heart. The worst thing you could ever do is follow your heart. Your heart is deceitful, your heart is wicked, but we're told well, you're empowered, you're in charge, and we believe that lie. And we're being played. One good thing to ask yourself is always, who's getting paid? Follow the money. This is not just an innocent, you're, you're amazing, we trust you. Someone makes money off of this. 
in this very confusing world where faces are veiled and you're at the opening of the eyes and you're being told one thing that that's not true. This is why we need this. This is what the, part of the reason that the church is here. This is where you have the light of God, the light of Christ. And every Sunday you get to hear the, the foundation again. What is true? Who is true? What is, tell me the gospel again. Apply it to my heart. We need the word. We need the church. We, we need the light. But Judah has none of that. He's completely floundering and confused, and, and he takes the bait. He acts on impulse, like his uncle Esau. Remember Esau with base passion? I'm so hungry. I need that soup. Some of your birthright. Okay, I, I'll give you my birthright. Just give me that, that, that porridge. And so Judah, he's completely not prepared to pay a prostitute. And so Tamar sets the hook. Well, what can you give me to, as proof that you will pay? And she accepts, well, she accepts a young goat as payment, but what about until I get that goat? I need a pledge. I need a guarantee. And so Judah gives, coughs up some very personal items, his own personal seal and the cord that was around his neck and his staff. It'd be like giving someone your driver's license today. Judah does not think twice. He's like Esau. It just acts on impulse. I deserve this. I want more. In fact, think about how just base this is because he can't even see Tamar. She's covered her face. He doesn't care if she's pretty or not. He just wants an object for his own physical pleasure. After he returns home, he sends Hera with his friend with a goat to get back his pledge, his seal, his cord, and staff. And Hera says, I, I didn't find her. In fact, no one had seen this prostitute. And so, verse 23, Judah says, uh-oh. Let her keep what she has or will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. This would be like leaving your, or losing your credit card at a, at a brothel. You want to keep your head down and stay out of the news. Judah says, well, this is embarrassing. And Tamar says, oh, just wait. Because in the very next verse, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she's now pregnant. Judah responds, bring her out and have her burned to death. White hot fury. He's thinking, okay, Tamar, two of my sons are dead because of her. She couldn't get pregnant, and now she gets pregnant by prostitution? She's hurt. She's embarrassed his family. For the last time, burn her. And imagine the hypocrisy of Judah. He himself has just been with a prostitute just three months before, and you know he remembers it because he just tried to send the goat to get back his seal and cord and staff. It's fresh in his mind. He can do it, but not his daughter-in-law? And just... Again, how he puts himself over her family. She's pregnant. He's not just killing her. He's killing the baby, too, that's inside her. Would you trust this man with your son? No. Tamar's brought out to be publicly shamed and burned. And she turns the tables. Verse 25. She sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. Then she added a really sick burn. See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff 
these are. Back at the end of chapter 37, when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, and they took his coat, this precious coat, and ripped it and dipped it in blood, and they brought, they didn't just tell Jacob what happened, they wanted Jacob to figure it out himself. And so at the end of chapter 37, they said, do you recognize this robe? And Jacob said, oh my goodness, it's Joseph, he's dead. Remember I said the brothers kept this secret somehow really tight, which is amazing how they could keep this secret from Jacob for so long? Well, Judah has left the family, right? He's, in his mind, I'm not coming back. I'm too good for that. I'm going to be with my friend Hera here in Adullam. And Judah, as we'll see with his speech, well, as, if you read the story, you'll see Judah has a soft spot. He will, he's the one that, I think, encourages Joseph to finally forgive and, and let, let us all back in because he, he has a soft spot for his father. So it wouldn't surprise me if Judah, he's far from home, if he, if he leaks. And he tells his wife and his sons what happened and how they, they took the robe to Jacob and said, do you recognize these? So there's a good chance Tamar knows the story. And she, a really sick burn back at, at, at Judah. Here, I have this seal, I have this cord, I have this staff. Do you recognize these? Judah is as stunned as Jacob, but Jacob was stunned to learn he had lost a son. Judah was stunned to learn he had one. Actually, it turns out to be two. He hits the bottom in verse 26, and he says, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. This is Judah's turning point. He came this close to be killed by God, right? If God killed Ur, if God killed Onan for, not having, for being wicked and not giving a son to Ur, for Ur, what would God do with the man who also would not allow um, Tamar to have a son for Ur? So if God smote Onan, Judah must have come this close to being killed by God as well. But now he's caught in this public glare. There's the guilt and the shame that he can't possibly explain away. And here's the crucial part. He chose to step up and to own it. And he said, she is more righteous than I. This is the first time in Judah's life that anyone was more than him. He always wanted more. He deserved more. He, he, he had more coming. But now he says, someone else is more than me. And I think this speaks to us today because we live in a, a culture which is, this, this is really timely because even non-Christian sociologists say something happened in 2012 with anxiety, with depression, with uh, sometimes suicidal thoughts, with loneliness and deep despair, especially among young people. Something happened. It just spiked. They call it the hockey stick. If you look at the graph and suddenly something spikes like a long end of a hockey stick, something happened in around 2012. You can't prove it. But even non-Christian expert psychologists, sociologists are saying, we think it's tied to the cell phone. Because the cell phone came out in... Uh, in 2012, more than half of Americans owned one. And it seems a very interesting coincidence that that's when things spiked. And what happens when you're on social media? You're always 
comparing yourself. And someone else has more than you, and so you feel bad. Um, so first of all, you're in Traverse City, for Pete's sake. You should never feel bad. Right? We come from Grand Rapids to say anniversary pictures at, at your East Bay, West Bay. So you're, you're already here. You've won. There's no reason for you to feel bad. But, there you go. But that's not the point. The point is you do feel bad because you have cell phones. <laughs> so when you're on a, so what happens is you see someone else and they're having fun and, they're, and you're not invited and you're not there. And so a couple of ways to, uh, to respond. First, it's, it's a race. I must win. I have to compete. And so you're always trying to com- out-compete them. My friends who are youth pastors say they've noticed a change that often when teenagers come to a church activity, they don't come for the activity. They come to be seen at the activity. Once they get their, their selfie, then they leave. Because that's all we want. We want to be seen to be having fun and being successful, being part of the in crowd. And so you race to compete. Or, as is often common in my experience with young men, young boys and men, you just, you give up, you quit, you, you retreat. You, I can't compete. I can't win. And you just kind of curl in. So what if instead of comparing ourselves with others, and this is the gospel that I know, Matt, you hear that you're so blessed to hear this every single week, but it's very simple. We're going to stop comparing ourselves with others. It's okay if someone else is more. Someone will always have more than you. Someone will always be more than you. They'll be better looking. They'll be more popular. They'll be better preachers. They'll be in a better church. They'll be in a better... You can't beat Traverse City, so you're, you're going to win that one. But someone will always have or be more than, and, and that's okay. It's more than okay, because you know what? The gospel, the good news is Jesus. It's just Jesus. Jesus, and if, I, if I'm resting in Jesus, I can be happy for you that you were invited to a party that I wasn't. I can be happy for you that you got an award that I think I should have had coming. I can be happy for you when you get promoted, when you get married, and, and I'm not, and you, you get pregnant, and I'm still struggling. Uh, you can have more, and it's okay, because I, I have Jesus. It's a re- resting in Christ, it's such a relief. We don't have to keep competing and trying to win. Others can be better parents, better lovers, better kids better writers, better singers, better everything. You don't need the best anything because you have Jesus. If we just put all our weight and rest in him and the good news that he's enough, if he's enough, other people can be more and have more. But notice that Judah says, not just she's more than me, but she's more righteous than me. That's tough. It's obvious that someone else is taller than you, or faster, or stronger, or smarter. Those are more objective things. You can't argue them. But more righteous? The word righteous means just. I'm guessing none of us in this room would want to admit that anyone else in this room is more just than us. Right? Saying that I'm less just than you, it feels like saying... I'm more racist than you, or I'm more sexist than you, I'm more bigoted than you, right? Who would admit that? 
Ever since the fall, we all view right and wrong, good and bad through our own eyes. And so we see things how we see them. And most of the time we do them because we think they're right. If I didn't think it was right, I wouldn't have done it. If I didn't was best, I wouldn't have done it. So we're full of confidence. But when showed that actually that wasn't right or wasn't best, we chalk it up too well. Okay, so I made a mistake. But I still, in my heart, I meant well. And if we can be shown that really we didn't mean well, then we can resort to, you don't know the pressure that I'm under. Oh, there are reasons I can explain. It is so hard, isn't it, to admit someone else is more just, more righteous, your moral superior? Judah is the first person in the Bible to confess his unrighteousness. I think this is part of why he goes, goes home. The next time we see the brothers, Judah is with them. Is his repentance genuine? Well, that's exactly what Joseph wants to find out, and that's why he has that test going on in the ensuing chapters. The story ends in verse 27, though. This is, this is key. When the time came for Tamar to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And she named him Perez. Then his brother who had the scarlet thread in his wrist came out and he was named Zerah. The word named Perez means breaking out or breakthrough. The name Zerah means He's got the scarlet, right? Scarlet uh, bracelet, uh, thread, which means scarlet, the color of dawn, sunrise. Sunrise is breaking out. It's a brand new day. These babies are important. Because remember I asked you, would you trust this man with your son? Someone did. Someone really important did. What if God tells a really good story? What if the story God tells is the best story you could ever imagine? It's way better than Harry Potter. What if Harry Potter just ripped it off, actually? What if Judah, who's done nothing right since you've seen him, what if Judah, who did horrific things, hypocritical things, despicable things, what if Judah, who was minutes from being smitten by God, what if he hits bottom, owns his sin, and then turns back to God? And what if God sees the change in Judah's heart and binds himself to this man in the most personal, intimate way possible? What if God entrusts his own son to Judah. That would be some story. And that's the story. The end of, the end of Ruth, you know the story of Ruth, Ruth chapter four, verse 18? We, and Ruth ends this way. Boaz, Boaz who was the son of Rahab the prostitute, is the great, 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 four great grandson of Perez, the son of Tamar, who played the role of the prostitute. And Boaz is the great-grandpa of David. And David is the ancestor of Jesus. Judah 
will earn his spot as the leading tribe of Jacob, the one who God entrusts with his own son. The guy who named his first son evil spelled backwards will have a son who will break the spell and turn evil back on itself. What a story of redemption. But it's only a story of redemption because it's got one more twist, one more crank. What's the capital of Judah? Jerusalem. And in this place, a few, several hundred years after Judah, there will be many Jews gathered, many from the tribe of Judah, in the capital of Judah, yelling about the Son of God, crucify him, crucify him. Judah's, Judah's line turns evil again. God is the last one who should ever entrust his son to this man. And yet, because he did, you and I can be saved. So here's the point. The, the worst thing you can take from the story of Judah is, okay, I've got to clean up my life. I'm going to stop lying. I'm going to not marry pagans. I won't visit prostitutes. I'm going to clean up my life, and then God will trust me. No, that's, that's, that's how you go to hell. right? In our culture, what's a redemption? We talk about a, a story of redemption is someone who, who saved themselves. They, they had a really bad year throwing a football, and then this year is their year of redemption because they got better. They worked hard. They were humble, and they, they, they became a better person. Jesus died because you can't do that. It doesn't work. Stop trying. You're just embarrassing yourself. We're, think of Judah, Judah's descendants. They killed Jesus. And that was part of the story. Because only we can't do anything to earn our right, our spot with God. We can't become good enough. I haven't seen it yet. Um, maybe when it comes on the stream. But the Barbie movie, right? There's a movie now about Barbie. Um, and there's this line, I guess, this near the end, this solilo soliloquy where it's about how, how hard it is to be a woman today. We can never be enough. We can never do enough. I shouldn't have brought that up at the end of a sermon, but just, uh, we kind of just, I'm not going to make any comments about how hard it is to be a woman because I don't have that experience. But one takeaway is, you know, you're right. You can't do enough. You'll never be good enough. And that's the point. That's why Jesus came. We never outgrow the gospel. It's not like, I'm sure Matt has told you because this is one of Tim Keller's lines, the gospel is not the ABC of the Christian life. The gospel is the A through Z of the Christian life. Everything you and I do, it's a response to, the, to, rest, to Jesus. It's what Jesus has done. And we rest in him. So like Judah, we need to own our sin. Someone is more righteous than I. Praise God, someone's more righteous than me. Own our sin, and then we come home, like Judah, and we rest in that someone. So he said in the sermon, would you trust this man with your son? There's a better question, a way more important question. Will you trust 
this man's son. He's all you got. He's all you need. As we move now to the Lord's Supper, I want to just talk about that phrase, he is more righteous than I. And that applies to Jesus, Jesus the just. In 1 John 2, 1, we read that Jesus the just is our advocate. We have a, a lawyer advocating on our behalf in heaven to the Father. Jesus the just. He is more just, more righteous than you and I. And what do you think Jesus is pleading for us in heaven? Certainly mercy, right? God have mercy on them. I died, have mercy on my behalf. But if he just says mercy, can you imagine Satan's response? Mercy? Are you kidding me? I didn't get mercy. That's not right. That's not fair. Jesus doesn't just say mercy. He says, forgive them on the grounds of justice. Think about that. Sinners like us have Jesus pleading your case and my case before the Father in heaven, not just please be merciful and be kind, but it's the right thing to do. Justice, if you're in Christ, justice is on your side. Because your sin, if you've put your faith in Christ, your sin has already been punished in Jesus. It would be a sin for God to punish the same sin twice. So our humble Savior, who is Judah's son and allowed Judah's descendants to kill him, that was all part of the plan so you and I could be saved. If you don't know that you know Jesus, do not come forward and take the bread and the cup. These are for baptized followers of Christ, all of us who follow Christ and know him. Don't come up but where you're seated, please take Jesus. Rest in him. If you're not sure how to do that, talk to us after the service. We'd love to, anyone, so many of us could tell you and lead you to Christ and, and the good news of Jesus. And then next week, you can take it with us and we'd be so delighted for that. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you that no, thank you just feels trite. We don't have words to say how much we don't have words. Thank you for well, we love Jesus. We love your son. We don't deserve him. We deserve to languish in hell forever because we choose our own way. We've done what we think is best, what our, our culture tells us is best. And we're all confused, like Judah at Eniam, not even knowing that he's the one being played. But we praise you that you have given us Jesus, your beautiful, wonderful son, who loves us and is merciful and is just. And if we follow him and put our faith in him, he is pleading justice for us even now this is more than we can understand more than we can fathom but we praise you we thank you and we rest in your son in his name amen mm -hmm.